We are studying the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the marvelous last book of the Bible. We are in chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. The letter to the church at Ephesus. Jesus dictates or writes seven letters to seven churches, and he begins with Ephesus. That's our text. The topic, Jesus tells the church at Ephesus that despite all their works, they have left their first love for him. The title of our message, You've Left That First Love Feeling. Righteous Brothers? Come on. No? How many know that song? Raise your hand. All right. All right. Father, thank you for this gathering of uh, saints and perhaps others who are here, Lord, that don't know you. It's a wonder, Lord, to think that you saw us here before the foundations of the world, that you know us deeply and intimately, and that you have uh, a message or messages for each of us, Lord. The Bible says that you are the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. And so we believe that your death on the cross was sufficient, Lord, to forgive the sins of anyone who comes to you and repents and uh, falls in love with you, that you will give them eternal life. And Lord, we uh, thank you that many of us have been born again. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Lord, either way, we want to hear from you today. A non-believer having you draw him or her to Christ, believer having you draw him or her closer to Christ. And so as we learn things about this passage, Lord, I pray that we would learn things about you and your love and grace for us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It was a 120-mile round trip from San Bernardino, where I lived, to Santa Ana, where Pam lived. I would leave every weeknight just a few minutes after work. Gasoline, leaded, I might add, was 50 cents a gallon. That was a lot back then. Minimum wage was $2 an hour. Even though my red 1974 Datsun pickup got great gas mileage, it was costing me almost $2.5 a day. I'd stay later and later, getting home so early in the next morning that I was sleeping less and less. I ended up in the emergency room of, I think it was St. Joseph's Hospital in Orange, diagnosis, exhaustion. It is a 33-foot, 6-inch round trip from my couch to the refrigerator. (laughs) Pam will sometimes ask me to get her a Diet Coke. A dread comes over me as I run through the steps that are involved. I have to get up, get her stainless steel mug, add ice, grab the can from the fridge, pop the top, pour it, wait for the foam to settle, secure the top of the mug, deliver the drink, all the while trying not to trip on the cats who think I got up to give them treats. I'm still not done. The can goes into a pail in the garage for recycling. That's another 20 feet easily each way. It doesn't really mess with my sleeping because I'm mostly asleep on the couch already anyway. Diagnosis? Selfishness. What happened to that first love? Well, first love was on Jesus' mind when he wrote to the believers in Ephesus. I have this against you that you have left your first love, he'll say in verse 4. Leaving your first love for Jesus is something that can happen to any church and to any believer. How do we get back? I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, works don't require your first love. 
And number two, repentance revives your first love. Let's take a look at our works in verses one through four. First love in the Bible, it's a little bit hard for commentators to nail down. They disagree on exactly what it is. Since Jesus gave no indication, first love must be something the Ephesians would have understood without explanation. I mean, he's, he's not about the business of confusing us in this book. Uh, and so they must at least have known what he was talking about. It would be like me mentioning Triple H to you. How many of you know what Triple H is here at Calvary Hanford? The majority. For those of you who don't, it's our annual harvest celebration. Why is it called Triple H? Somebody named it the Harvest Hallelujah Happening, and it stuck even against my uh, wishes. And so I said, can we at least call it Triple H? Uh, and that way it'll at least confuse people and they won't have to know how hokey it is. Sounds like a hoedown. <laughs> so that's the, but when I mentioned Triple H, you're not, what's he talking about? And so Jesus said, you've left your first love. So they must have known what that meant. We can know what it means too, because Paul had written a letter to the church at Ephesus. And in that letter, we discover that Paul conspicuously depicted Jesus as a bridegroom and the church as the bride. And so first love was the love of an engagement to Jesus. Here are a few things to back that assertion. In Ephesians 1.14, Paul wrote that God the Holy Spirit is, I quote, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Commenting on this, Warren Wearsby writes, uh, Wearsby, excuse me, writes, the word translated guarantee means engagement ring. In Greece today, you would find this word being used that way. Our relationship to God through Jesus is a personal experience of love. He is the bridegroom and his bride is the church. Listen for mentions of the heavenly bridegroom and his earthly bride as Paul wrote this long section about husbands and wives in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. And if you're having problems in your marriage this morning, this is the marriage portion of the study. So pay attention. Wow. Wow. That sounded so much better in my mind. But anyway, in Ephesians, we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body, just as the church is subject to Christ. So let wives be to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so Paul, in order to really talk about marriage on earth, kept comparing it to this heavenly marriage between Jesus and the Christian and the church. Then there's the word Ephesus itself, which can mean desirable or even darling. That's a romantic term. Paul taught the Ephesians that our time on earth, anticipating the coming of Jesus to resurrect and rapture the church, is like an engagement that will consummate in a wedding. And the bridegroom could come any moment, heightening the excitement. 
Elsewhere, in another letter, Paul likened himself to a matchmaker who not only introduced the saints to Jesus, but who also felt it his duty to uh, preserve their purity as the bride of Christ. He wrote in 2 Corinthians, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so believers in the church in Ephesus would understand immediately first love to be the vibrant, expectant, romantic, sacrificial love of their engagement. With that in mind, verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now we established in chapter 1 that the Revelation scroll John wrote was taken from church to church uh, through these seven churches that we're going to meet in chapters 2 and 3. And it was read by a person called the angel. Angel simply means messenger. And for lots of reasons, we just figured that this is probably the pastor of the church who would be tasked with reading the scroll uh, before it moved on to the next church. Jesus greeted each church using an image of himself from chapter one. So if you're here for the first time and you think these are weird images, they were explained for us in chapter one. We saw him there in the midst of seven lampstands, having in his right hand seven stars. And Jesus told us that the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which we saw are the seven churches. Here in verse five of our text, Jesus will say, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, a lampstand Uh, was, in Jesus' mind, the perfect picture to get his message across to the believers in Ephesus because they were concerned about their testimony to the world. They wanted to shine brightly for Jesus, and he was telling them they're in danger of not having a testimony at all because they had left their first love. And it reminded me that many times the Lord has a, a word for us, Uh, And I'm talking more about what is already in the word of God than something outside of it or something, you know, unique. Uh, A lot of times people will ask advice or they'll have a problem. It's a good idea to first ask them if they've noticed anything in God's word, if God has directed them to a certain passage or passages of scripture. And you'd be surprised a lot of times people say, well, as a matter of fact, At church, we talked about this on Sunday, and then Monday morning on my way to work, I was listening to the radio, and it's a program I don't even hardly listen to, but it had the same emphasis, and then one of my friends at lunch came up and mentioned the scripture. You can be pretty sure that the Lord is trying to get your attention, Uh, and many times the answer you seek is in that scripture or in that narrative, and, and if you'll meditate on it, the Lord will speak to your heart. Wednesday nights, we usually have a prayer time where we encourage believers, if God puts a scripture on your heart, read that out loud so other believers can hear because it might minister to them in a way that you uh, can't know. It's actually an exercise of the gift of prophecy. And so prophecy isn't always knowledge of the future or, you know, I see that hand, you're going to raise $100 million for the church or, you know, that kind of thing. It's something that the Lord wants to give you an immediate word on. And so uh, to Ephesus, he said, you're going to have to think, do you guys want to lose your light to the world? Because you're about to because of this problem. Being in Jesus' right hand speaks to me of intimacy. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and we are spiritually too 
being held by his right hand. A local church is a lampstand meant to burn brilliantly in this present darkness of the world. How were they doing in first century Ephesus? Well, in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. The Ephesian believers had works in overabundance. Their works were characterized by labor and by patience. Labor describes strenuous, exhausting work, not in a negative way, not as a burden, but in that way you feel when, although exhausted, it was totally worth it because you enjoyed every minute of it. They had patience as they worked. Although they faced fierce local opposition from non-believers, they pressed on for the Lord. They didn't let their persecution and oppression stop them. They had, uh, it says here that they could not bear those who are evil. In one of the most emotional moments of the book of Acts, Paul met with the elders from Ephesus to warn them that false teachers would try to infiltrate the church to destroy it with their false teachings. The Ephesians took this seriously, and they would not tolerate these false apostles, calling them liars. Apparently, they would ask people what they believed and whether they were there to infiltrate with their beliefs. And they would uh, make this known to people, say, hey, stay away from those people because they are not teaching Jesus. Verse 3, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Their tribulation was producing patience. And the more they persevered against opposition, the more trouble they attracted and the more patient they became. They were not becoming weary in well-doing. You know how sometimes you think you're doing okay even though you're having some trials and troubles and then another hits and then another and you feel like it's just piling on. Did you ever do that at school? Pile on? And the guy at the bottom of that was wasted. You know, it's a big pile of people. But uh, so you feel, man, trouble after trouble. But in Ephesus, this was happening and they were growing more and more patient, more and more peaceful. Uh, kind of a bring it on attitude because uh, in for a penny, in for a pound. I mean, we're trusting the Lord. And so these are all high commendations. They must have been feeling pretty good about their evaluation. Then it happened. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Whoa. Did they gasp? Did someone say what? Did some begin to weep? Did the pastor reading the letter out loud pause? Were there those who disagreed or who immediately thought of others that were guilty of this, but certainly not them? Was there a clamor or was it calm? They couldn't point to their works as evidence that they loved Jesus. He had acknowledged their works. He had commended their works, but it turns out works don't require love. Paul wrote in another letter, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. The Ephesians had a love in 62 AD when Paul wrote to them that they had left by 95 AD when Jesus wrote to them. And so over a period of 30 years, though the church uh, was doing a great work, they had moved away from a position of love. They had left their first love. And now this is where it gets hard, at least for me, because what we're talking about has to do with motives, and motives can be really, really difficult for us to discern. I don't think we can discern them at all in other people, but I don't even know my own motives all the time. If you think that, uh, I don't want to burden you, and I don't want you to get bummed out, but have you ever thought back to a different time in your life, and now you know what your motives really were? 
At the time, you thought you had these pure motives, but now you look back and you think, oh, I, that was all about me. I was being selfish. I was being, uh, you know, whatever and stuff. And so it's hard. I can bestow all my goods to feed the poor on account of love for Jesus, or I can do it as a work that has nothing to do with my love for him. Fortunately for us, we read this in the book of Hebrews. The word of God, the Bible, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so we're promised that the word of God, our exposure to the word of God will pierce our hearts in such a way that Jesus will show us our motives. We will be able to discern what our true motives are. Now, if you do a simple search in Strong's Concordance, you'll see that the two-edged sword is called a dirk, D-I-R-K. Do your Google search for dirk, and once you get past uh, references of Dirk Nowitzki, the basketball player, you'll discover a dirk is a long-bladed thrusting dagger. Historically, it was a personal weapon of officers engaged in naval hand-to-hand combat. You've often seen this depicted in movies uh, where there's the the personal weapon. The one I think of all the time is the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, where Aragorn comes and he's fighting that enormous, crazy orc at the end, and he's just getting beat down. Uh, And at one point, he's down on the ground and he reaches back and he pulls pulls out a dagger and he stabs the orc in the leg. Then the orc takes it out and he licks the blood and he throws it at Aragorn. Aragorn picks up a sword and he knocks the sword away and he comes and he cuts this guy's arm and head off. It's great. (laughs) Go for it. Well, that's like, that's a dirk. It's a personal weapon uh, made for thrusting like that. It calls to mind the phrase cut to the heart. When you read this in Hebrews and it says you're going to be thrust through with this dagger in your heart, it's like being cut to the heart. I happen to come across this factoid. The first use in English of the expression cut to the heart traces back to the Bible, specifically the second chapter of the book of Acts. It was the day of Pentecost. The apostle Peter was sharing the gospel with the crowds at the temple. Hearing about Jesus, uh, it says this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And so the word of God that Peter was preaching to them was like a dagger to their heart. And they stopped him in the middle of his preaching, not because he was boring or they had lunch to go to, uh, but because they wanted to know what to do because they were being drawn by the Holy Spirit. And so they repented and believed and were saved. If you've left your first love, you need to be cut to the heart. It isn't a surgical cut. It's an instantaneous spiritual thrust into your heart that ignites your repentance. It may sound violent, but it's an act of love. Again, I don't want to belabor the image, but it's as if Jesus cuts you to the heart and stuns you with the understanding and the knowledge that something is wrong. You've been cut to the heart. We read in Hebrews that it is a division of the soul from the spirit so that you can tell the truth to yourself about what's really going on in your life. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful surgery in one sense, but it's more, it's a more of a lover's surgery. I was thinking, too, by now you figured out I like superhero movies, right? Not all of them, but some of them. But this reminds me of a little bit as far as lovers go. Uh, Remember at the end, Wolverine has to kill Phoenix. Remember that? How many remember that? 
she, they love each other, of course, they're in love, but she's become so weirdly powerful that she has to be stopped and she knows it. And Logan is the only one who can kill her because you can't kill him and he has to come and end her. And so, so it's, it's, a, it's a love thing. So Jesus says, spontaneous worship just right. Did you hear that or was that? I hear things now, so it could be that that was just me, but... If it was, I think Gene would be behind me tapping me out, you know, and stuff. So repentance revived your first love. Let's move on. I'm done with the movies for a few minutes. We've just come through the Christmas season. Chances are you watched It's a Wonderful Life and one or 12 versions of A Christmas Carol. They have in common that the protagonist in each was shown something that completely immediately changed them. George Bailey was thinking about ending it all until he was shown what his town would have looked like if it hadn't been for all his good deeds over the years. Ebenezer Scrooge was shown his past, present, and future to the effect that he became a generous philanthropist. When Jesus discerns the thoughts and the intents of your heart and shows you them, you will completely, immediately change. Put simply, the very realization that you have left your first love ignites your repentance. Verse 5, remember therefore where you have fallen and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you were saved later in life, you can easily relate to first works. You receive Jesus as your savior and you experience the forgiveness of your sins. God the Holy Spirit came to indwell you and you were transformed into a new creation in Christ. You knew love for the very first time. Your first works weren't works at all, not in the traditional sense that we think. Your first works were simply responses to the love of Jesus Christ. And so uh, maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. You've never been born again. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit, one of his jobs, as it were, is to uh, bring the knowledge of Jesus to your heart. He's to free your will so you can see Jesus loving you, dying for you on the cross, drawing you to himself. If that happens to you today, and if you become born again, you will be absolutely transformed from within. You will have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and you will suddenly have an urge to do things that you never had before, like read the Bible, to know more about this Jesus who saved you and loved you so much that he came from heaven to earth. And you'll want to tell people, I went to church today and the most remarkable thing happened to me. I got saved. Uh, and you'll want to read the Bible, uh, you know, and uh, share with others about Jesus. And you'll want to pray. You'll want to talk to the Lord. And nobody has to take you aside and tell you that. I mean, they might, but they are the natural reaction because you become hungry for more of God. And so that's what we're talking about here. When Jesus said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, he was saying that as soon as you really realize that you've left your first love, you repent and return to your love as motive. Or else, he says, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The churches on the earth are lampstands. They are the only spiritual light in the darkness of a realm, we're told, whose uh, ruler is the God of this world and whose allies include the rulers of the darkness of this age. And so um, the church is far more important than people realize, sometimes than even believers realize. And by church, I don't mean just individual Christians on the earth. I mean specifically local churches who meet 
and have Jesus present in their gatherings. Uh, we're told in one place that after the church is removed, when Jesus comes to resurrect the dead and rapture the church, literally all hell will break loose on the earth. You think it's bad now? COVID-19, abortion, uh, lying politics, all the stuff that we're dealing with. You think it's bad? You think we're on a downhill slide? As they used to say, you ain't seen nothing yet. And even though everybody thinks the church is failing, every, I read articles all the time how the church is failing, we're not reaching our generation, we need to do more than just preach the gospel, all of this kind of stuff. The church is the only power on earth that is holding back a flood of evil and wickedness way worse than anything that we've ever encountered before. And so, yeah, it, we're essential. We're a lot more essential than Costco. <laughs> Even though, you know, some of you live and die by Costco, Costco is not holding back a tide of evil. They, they have no awareness of the rulers of the darkness of this age, uh, except in their pricing, maybe, I don't know, but... <laughs> Jesus' gift of God the Holy Spirit is our source of oil for our lampstand. And as we saw last week, he trims the wick, keeping us burning brightly unless we leave our first love. Now, why would Jesus remove you from a place of witness if you leave your first love? Because your witness is not an accurate portrayal of a love relationship he desires from you as his darling espoused bride. Above all, Jesus wants the world to know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And a church that is not in love with Jesus, does not have first love, spiritually speaking or materially speaking, is going to give off, we used to say give off a vibe. Is that still used today? I'm dating myself, I know, but who cares? You didn't have a Datsun pickup. You have some stupid Nissan. <laughs> anyway, uh, Jesus doesn't want people to know that he, they have to work for him or labor for him or any of this. He wants people to know that he loves them and, and he wants us to give up that vibe. In describing a local church, we might say it has a certain personality based on who or what it emphasizes. And again, the personality of the first century church in Ephesus was work, or you might say work ethic. If people got together and said, hey, what about that church in Ephesus? Oh man, they are workaholics. They're working, working, working for the Lord. There's one there. There's another guy over there. They're sharing Christ over there. They had this fantastic testimony. If they had a website, they would have had a huge drop-down menu of ministries that you could partake in. It wasn't a place you could be involved without being involved in ministry, but it would, it would be a happy involvement. But the work was not motivated by first love for Jesus, and therefore it gave off the wrong impression. A church can go for a long, long time doing works that are loveless. Quickly is the Greek word from which we get tachometer. And so Jesus isn't saying, a little at a time, I'm going to remove your witness. He says, no, hey, your witness is intact. Your good works are great. You've left your first love. If you don't realize it, then all of a sudden, one day, your testimony is going to be gone. Exactly what that means, I don't know whether the, you know, Ephesus would be wiped out or whether the church would be persecuted to death or, you know, whatever. Uh, but Jesus said, somehow your witness will be gone. Verse six, this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
A mystery surrounds the identity of the Nicolaitans. No one really knows exactly who they were. There are four major suggestions. First, an early church figure by the name of Irenaeus said they were followers of Nicholas, one of the original seven deacons. He is said to have fallen away from Christ, apostatized, and taken people with him. Second, suggested that the sect began through a misinterpretation of a statement by Nicholas based upon they lived a life which indulged in the sinful pleasures of the flesh. And so he remained a solid Christian, but they took some of his words out of context and twisted them uh, to their own detriment. And third, there are those who point out that the word itself means conqueror of the people or being over people. And they say it's the priesthood that grew up later uh, where you had God and then a priest and then the people. So there's this person in between you and God that isn't Jesus uh, and that you can't really know God without this person and he tells you about God and that's how it gets over. Fourth, and this is a more modern approach to this word, is that it became a television network for children. The Nickelodeons. I'm really happy with that one, but anyway... Jesus uses the word hate and people there's pages after pages are written about you know it seems to bother people but again it shouldn't upset you because it's in keeping with the romantic nature of this letter if you're in a section of scripture that is dealing with you know uh, images of love and romantic love you can expect some strong language Lovers grow together as one. They love what each other loves and they hate what each other hates. In this case, men were coming in, teachers were coming in, trying to draw away Christians to themselves and away from Christ. I can't think of a really good illustration, but if you're engaged and you come home and your fiance says, hey, there were some people here today that were trying to draw me away from you. And, and my old boyfriend showed up and, and he says, you should marry, I should marry him instead of you. Oh, let's have dinner together. Let's, let's talk about that. No, you hate that guy. Not in, a ter- not in a sinful way, but it's like, I'll go talk to him. <laughs> I'll take care of this, you know, that kind of. And so perfectly normal that Jesus would hate what we hate and that we would hate what he hates in that sense. And there are things that are very serious. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Everyone is invited to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every Christian in every age throughout the church age. So these letters, we looked at this last time. They're written to a specific church, but they're written to all churches and they're written to all Christians. He who has an ear. Him who overcomes is a phrase found in each of these letters to the seven churches. And it simply describes a believer as opposed to someone who is not a believer. Because in any church gathering, there's the potential for there to be non-believers. And so Jesus is saying to you who are overcomers, to you who are believers, I will make these promises. Uh, One commentary put it this way. Almost all the references to overcoming in the Bible mention a promise for all believers Promises that accompany salvation. It would seem strange to think only of some believers eating of the tree of life or not being hurt by the second death or not being clothed in white garments. John himself would write, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, faith. 
Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? And have you been born again? Then the Bible says you are an overcomer. Doesn't mean you're a super spiritual Christian or that you've achieved the next level like in the Mario Brothers game or something like that. It means you're a Christian as opposed to people who are not Christians. Now, at the very end of the revelation, once we are in the new creation, all believers will partake of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. In Revelation 22, it says, on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Now, I don't know if you're ready for this, but I have to tell you, I'm pretty sure that in eternity, we will all be fruitarians. You cavemen dieters, you keto people, vegetarians like myself, you vegans, forget it. It's only going to be fruit. It was our, after all, it was the original diet in the Garden of Eden, right? No death. It's not going to be herds of Harris Ranch cattle that you're going to go slaughter to have some big steak. And don't sit there and think, I wouldn't be happy in heaven if there wasn't meat. Might want to have a few more fruit salads now to get ready for that. <laughs> I never liked fruit growing up, and so, but fruit salad, that's another thing because it's got like 20 pounds of Cool Whip in it. <laughs> and so, you know, I'd pick out a grape and suck off the Cool Whip and put it back in. <laughs> I'm Italian. I mean, it seemed normal at the time, so why worse, uh, waste a perfectly good grape? Every source I sought out suggests things you can or should or must do to repent and return to your first love. Here's just a sampling. Get your priorities back in order. Talk about Jesus constantly. Do the first works of worship, prayer, Bible study, giving, fasting, and serving others. Cut out distractions to make more time to spend with him. Here's my problem. When I got saved, these things just happened. They happened through grace on account of Jesus' love for me. I really don't think it works the other way. If Jesus says to me, Gene, you've left your first love, I I don't think if I just say, okay, Lord, let me get a yellow pad and let me reorganize my priorities. Okay, I can put Jesus here if I move my 1030 to 12. And then if I skip lunch and have a little bit of prayer and then, okay, I see how this works. I just need to have the latest Jesus prioritizer from the bookstore, and I will once again be in love with the Lord. I I don't feel a dagger thrust from that, do you? That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. I'm not going to be re-overwhelmed with first love. And so first love is a lot about re-realizing Jesus' love for me. Realizing his love for me is what ignited the flame in my heart for him. I did nothing. He did everything. As John would point out elsewhere, we love him because he first loved us. Sometimes we just have to have that really hit us, we could say, or come to us. And Jesus says, yeah, it's like I'm going to stab you in the heart in a good way. I'm going to take that dagger, that Dirk dagger, and I'm going to stab you in the heart. No one else can talk to you there because it's between the soul and the spirit and people don't even understand if there is a soul and a spirit. They're still arguing about that, but I know that you have both. 
I can get there, I can talk to you, I can show you anything that you need me to show you. And to Ephesus he was saying, I'm showing you that you've left your first love. And I'm sure there were some believers who received that dagger and others who just didn't. A lot of times in marriage counseling, I don't want to belabor this, but there are times when, you know, usually it's a husband and wife, wife comes in and in some way she says, I just don't feel loved anymore. He doesn't love me anymore. And it is a moment of absolute clarity. It's a precious moment for the husband to say, I'm so sorry. I do love you. I guess I haven't been showing you. I want to show you. I have that love for you. Instead of saying, what do you mean? I love you. What are you talking about? Uh, I got friends and I love them too, but I love you. You know, and it's just, it's not funny either. And you know what? It's, it's, it's weird. Remember earlier, Jesus said, I will come suddenly. I've seen this happen. It's not right. But a, a wife will hang in there and hang in there and hang in there. You don't love me. You don't love me. You don't love me. Please love me. And then all of a sudden, she's done. It's not right, but it's, that's it. It's over. I don't love him. I don't know why I ever loved him. And then the husband says, oh, I love you. Can we put this back together? Because you know what happened? It came quickly. All of a sudden, it was over. And then it's 10 times harder to make it work. And so this is the kind of thing Jesus is talking about. You don't have to do anything. Uh, I, I would suggest just an openness to the word, a receptiveness, a reading. Obviously, you need the word. You need to be where the word is being taught with power and read the Bible for yourself and listen to it and just be open to those pricks of your heart. Get to know yourself talking to yourself. And when, when you think of something and you immediately say, oh, no, that's not true of me. Oh, no, but I love you, Lord. Uh, you know, that just let the, just ruminate a little bit. In this assembly, there's got to be more than one person who's left their first love and doesn't know it because they've got good works in abundance. I can't know it for you. You can't know it for me, but the Lord knows it. And he's, he's going he's gonna to knife you in the heart if you'll hear him. He who has an ear to hear. Father, thank you for these things. They're deep and wonderful too deep for us, Lord, in so many ways. But we're not worried about that because we have the Holy Spirit to interpret them for us. And I do pray, Lord, for this assembly of people, those of us who need to be cut to the heart, not just about first love, but about other things, about good things, about sin in our heart, about different things. I pray that we would receive it. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not a believer in Jesus Christ, that like on the day of Pentecost, they would be shouting in their hearts, what must we do? And that the answer, of course, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so if that does uh, describe you, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, um, we're gonna have David standing over here during the baptism. Just come on up and, and uh, talk to him. We don't want anything from you. We're not going to even get any information from you. But we want to let you know that we're talking about eternal life. The world, not doing too well. And yet, Christians, we know why. We know what's going on. We see, uh, read between the lines because we have the Bible. And we're excited because the Lord is coming back. 
And so if, if you don't know the Lord, you, you, you can know him right now. You can be born again. And so while we're baptizing folks who want to give testimony of their phone going off, then uh, while we're watching the baptism, come forward and have your own testimony of the day you came to know Christ. Amen.